We'll be in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 28. Verse 14 says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord, <clears throat> forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did the, those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with them, with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of, the, uh, the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he, that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. You may be seated. Well, amen, church. It is a uh, a beautiful day, a beautiful weekend that we have before us, and it is a great privilege and honor to not only gather with you to worship the Lord through singing, but also to open his word and allow it to mold us and shape us and challenge us this morning. In the early 1700s, there was a man named Jonathan Edwards that lived in the colonial America that became one of the most influential pastors, preachers uh, of the day, and even today. Uh, in, in all of history. And at one point, he served as a president of Princeton University. He was married to his wife, Sarah, and through their marriage, they were blessed to have 11 kids. Yeah, I thought the same thing when I was reading about that. My wife and I, we're getting ready to have number two. Um, uh, Sailor's coming soon, and we're getting ready for that. I could not imagine getting ready for number 11. Uh, that would be stressful. We were looking at some pictures of of the last, like, I guess, maternity shoot that we did when Florence was coming, and I had a lot more hair. Uh, so that's the big difference between one child to two, so I don't want to see what it is from two to 11. You know what I mean? But Jonathan uh, Edwards was a godly man. He wasn't a perfect man by any means, but he was a godly man. And there was a study done of 1,400s of Edwards' descendants to which the faithfulness of him and his wife was evident. I want you to listen to this. His line includes 100 lawyers, 80 people who held public office, 66 physicians, 65 college professors, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors of large cities, three state governors, three U.S. senators, uh, one controller of the U.S. Treasury, one VP of the United States, and it said it also includes 300 preachers. Talking about a stacked family tree here. So a super team going on. But interestingly enough, there's another man named Max Jukes who grew up in the same era as Edwards, but his integrity and his character was flipped. It was quite the opposite. 
And we only know about Jukes because a study was taken of 1,200 of his descendants after 42 men in the New York prison system were tied back to his family tree. His line includes seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 paupers, 440 alcoholics, and 300 of them died prematurely. See the difference here? What we can grasp from this is something called the five-generation rule, which is that it, it, how you parent your children now not only affects them directly, but also the four generations to follow for good or for evil. This is evident in Edward's line as he fought for the gospel in his home, discipled his children, and that carried on to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. For Jukes, it was quite the opposite. Your truth is probably your truth. You do as your body feels and as you want to do. And that carried on from the next generation to the next generation to the next generation. My question, one of them this morning, is if if someone was to study our descendants four generations from now, what would they find? What kind of people would be in our family tree four to five generations from now? And I think this is a cold, hard look in the mirror that we have to take this morning as we contemplate the life we live. Because the life we live determines the legacy we leave. And this leads us to the passage that we just read this morning. So I want you to keep your Bibles open. We are going to uh, hit a couple of things in Joshua chapter 24 as we close out our series. Man, we've been walking through the book of Joshua for several weeks now in a series called Strength and Courage. And it's been beneficial for me, and I hope it's been a blessing to you as it's edify you to fight for the things of God and do war against the enemy and sin in your life. But at this point, Joshua is 110 years old. He's an old man, and he's about to kick his oxygen habit, okay? He's about to die. He's about to give it up here. So he calls Israel together at Shechem to impart some final words. Now, his, his final words were words of the Lord, so they are eternal words. I don't know, I know I haven't, if you have ever thought about your final words, what they would be, what you would say. Many of us have probably not thought about that, but it is a reality that at some point in time, we will say our last word to the people that are around us. Again, for Joshua, he chose the words of the Lord. Last week, he began his last words by challenging Israel to look back and remember all that God had done, that they would loathe the idols that are in their life and fight for the kingdom of God. Today, he's going to wrap up reminding Israel that the way they live their life will determine the legacy that they leave. You see, through the first 13 verses of chapter 24, Joshua, he's speaking the words of God. He's recalling what is taking place. And God reminds the people of all that he's done, their faithfulness over the decades, or his faithfulness to them over the decades, spanning all the way back to Abraham. Then in verse 14, he makes a shift here. As he, out of the word of the Lord, imparts some challenges to the people. Now, verses uh, 14 and 15 are where we're going to be kind of really camping out and ringing out together this morning uh, to show us that the life you live determines the legacy you leave. And to put some legs on that for us all, you know, every good pastor has three points. And this morning, that doesn't change. Okay, we got three points. And the the way that I want to put some legs or some tie-downs onto this is that we're going to look at personal commitment. You can write these down and we'll walk through them. Personal commitment. The second one that we'll walk through together is parents, uh, parental responsibility. Parental responsibility. And the third thing that we'll walk through together is a public declaration. So personal commitment. Look back at Joshua 24, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read 14 and 15. It says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the Jordan and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. What are the gods of your fathers who they served in the region beyond the Jordan or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I would encourage you to underline that section. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua told the people, today you have a choice to make. You have a choice before you to serve 
the foreign false gods that your fathers did and the Amorites do in the land or for you to serve the one true living God. It's time to make your choice. But I want you to be aware. Joshua also says, regardless of what you choose, what my house is going to do is we are going to serve the Lord. No matter what you do, no matter how far you run to the left, uh, to the left or to the right, my family will stay the course and serve the Lord all of its days. And the fact is this morning, church, we are faced with the very same question. This dilemma is set before us. We have a decision to make because we have to be very clear. Something controls us. You see, something will interpret the way that we make decisions within our household. Something will interpret the way that we love others, the way we care for the widow or the orphan or not at all. Something will interpret the way that we use our finances, the way that we pray and we expend our time and our energy. And hear me, if you choose to serve the, uh, the world, if the world governs all of those decisions, you need to understand it will crush you. The world is not for your good. It is to crush you and it will slowly deplete you of your life. Only Jesus can bring life. Only Jesus can bring life. Only Jesus can fulfill the longings of your soul and give you the truth that you need to make sense of this crazy world that we so live in. So we can either let Christ inform and interpret and create our worldview, or we can steal just enough from Christ in hopes to pad our own worldview. Joshua said, I have made my choice, and I'm gonna serve the Lord, but now it's time for you to make your own. Who will be your master? And as I was mulling over this, I began thinking about a couple of different things. And uh, R.C. Sproul mentioned something as he was talking about the passage of Scripture. He says, you see, the issue I don't believe is an intellectual one because the fact that there is a God is plain to see. It's everywhere in creation that we see, the beautiful mountaintops, the, the creatures, us all together, everything. It is plain to see that there is a God. Rather, it's a moral one. We have a moral issue because, again, the existence of God is plain to see. We know he's powerful, but we love our things. We love ourselves. We turn ourselves over to the sexual desires that we have in our hearts, and we really don't want to let those things go. See, Joshua made a personal commitment to follow the Lord out of obedience. He knew it was going to cost his family. He knew it was not an easy thing to do. This is a big task to take on. But he made a commitment that neither he nor his household would turn away, that they would compromise, that they would fold under the pressure on any circumstance. Their servitude to the Lord was the most important thing for their family. Is that the most important thing for your family? Serving and honoring the Lord. You see in Joshua's declaration, he's got some people around him and the, and the people are kind of getting fired up. They're like, yes, I agree with that. We're gonna serve the Lord as well. But I want you to look at Joshua's response. And as he makes this declaration, as all of these people are kind of getting fired up, they're getting excited, like, we're gonna do that. We'll follow you. We'll follow the Lord. All of those different things. Look at Joshua 24, verse 19. This is interesting. But Joshua said to the people, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Sounds pretty strange, doesn't it? As you're trying to impart wisdom on somebody and they agree with you, and then all of a sudden you're like, ah, you don't agree with me. <laughs> you can't do that. That's not for you. Obviously, the people's like poker face was not very good, and they cracked. Joshua had been with these people for decades. He knows when they're on an emotional high. Like If you're married in the room, and the more time you spend with your wife, you know when you're in trouble and when you're not in trouble simply based upon the way your spouse looks. <laughs> it's easy to find out. Over time, Joshua has spent time with these people. So he knows when their words are empty and they make this declaration that they're gonna follow the Lord and he calls their bluff. He even says in verse 23, if you really mean this, if you really mean this, then turn away the false gods that are among you. 
Because we need to understand something this morning, church. God is not going to tolerate a half-hearted commitment. He won't tolerate cultural Christianity. He won't tolerate commitment when it's convenient. He's not going to tolerate you being one person on a Sunday and a different person on a Monday. He wants all of us because our God is a jealous God. So hear me, don't waste your time offering up empty words if you don't mean it. Because our heavenly father sees straight through it all. You might be able to fool people that are around you, but you cannot fool him. He sees our empty words and he wants all of us. But I think a lot of times when we hear the word jealousy, we can begin to think about our version of jealousy, but that's not the case. Sam Storms, who is a pastor, said this, God's jealousy is a zeal to protect a love relationship and avenge it when it's broken. It's that passionate energy by which God is provoked and stirred and moved to take action against whatever or whoever stands in the way of his enjoyment, of what he loves and desires. It's not a green-eyed monster. It's a red-faced lover who will tolerate no rivals in his relationship with his people. This is the zeal and jealousy of our God. He loves us beyond belief. Sorry, this is distracting the mess out of me. Hopefully that did that. All right, this is the jealousy and love that our God has for us as his people. He sent his son to die. Should he not love us more than anything we could ever imagine? If he has placed that kind of love on us, he's calling us to a higher standard. And he demands that from us as he has bought us with a price. See, Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And as the leader of his home, this not only meant that he made a personal commitment, but this also meant that he made a parental decision and he would take on the parental responsibility of leading his home. Parents, you need to understand nowhere in your job description of leading your family does it say you have to save your children. Nowhere in your job description does it say you have to save your children. Nowhere in your job description does it say you have to save your children. That is not your job. That is the job of the Lord and of the Lord alone. Your job as a parent is to teach, is to teach your children. Your job is to equip your children to make the right decision and the right choice in Christ. Teach them what a life in Christ looks like. And your job is to set them up to want nothing more than to love and obey Jesus. Regardless of whatever decision they make down the road, this is your job. Lay before them the glories of God. Lay before them his mercy and his majesty and his sacrifice and his sovereignty. The whole picture of God before your children. Because I, I, I want to make something extremely and blatantly clear for us. Your child's discipleship is not up to Kyle. It is not up to me. It is not up to Heath. It is not up to Austin. That doesn't fall on us. It falls on you. It falls on you. Now, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, we want to walk with you. We want to equip you. We want to help you through the wildest of situations, through the deepest of heartbreak, through the greatest mountaintop of joy. We want to walk with you through it all. We are going to open the word every single Sunday and every single Wednesday and teach your children the Bible. We are going to give them Jesus. This is why we do things like VBS. There has been a plethora of people that have come to know the Lord through VBS. It's a beautiful opportunity for you as a parent to bring your children, to have someone walk alongside you and teach them the word of God. That's what the whole week is about, teaching them the word of God, laying before them the gospel. Bring your children to VBS. And hear me, some of you need to come as well and lead out. Not only at VBS, we need a few more crew leaders for that, but also at camp, at student camp, camp whatever. 
Camp is another beautiful week where we take your kids away in hopes to impress upon them the glories of God, to take all of the distractions away from them and give them the gospel, the only thing that they need. They spend a week away from everything, and in every waking moment of their day, we have scheduled something meaningful. They will go have a good time, without a doubt, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that your children come and they hear Jesus. We've seen pastors in our church come through VBS and through camp. We've seen administrators within the body. We've seen all kinds of glory come through the ministry of these two events that we take place as a church. And hear me, our God is faithful and he will continue to do that. But we, we need your help in this. You see, our relationship is a two-way street. We work together in hopes to train up the next generation. We work together in hopes to train up, train up the next generation, but the primary, the person who is most responsible for the children you have is you. No parent is gonna stand before God one day and say the church didn't teach them. Why didn't you disciple your children? Well, the church didn't teach them. That will not fly. Your first and primary ministry is to your children. I need you to hear me. There's nothing more important in life than discipling your children. Nothing. Nothing is worth it. Worth it. No paycheck, no job, no social life. <laughs> None of that is more important than discipling your children. Because like I said a moment ago, you won't give an account for whether or not your children are saved or accept Christ, but you will give an account for how you led them to the feet of Jesus. So are you discipling them? Are you pointing them to Jesus? Are you praying with them and for them? Are you singing with them? Are you opening the word of God with them? Are you laying the gospel before them? And we might even say, I'm gonna wait until the next stage of life. Like I have a two-year-old daughter. Many people on that we see, not within this church, but throughout holistically, would say, I'm gonna wait till they can comprehend more things before we begin teaching them the Bible. That's not an excuse. We need to start now. Because you know who is starting now trying to reach our children? The enemy. One of the easiest ways for a young child to know the gospel is obviously for you to tell it to them. But listen to music. Play music that is gospel-saturated in your home. Sing around them. My daughter last night, we were having some family time and listening to some music, and a jazz live band is coming on, and they stopped, and she got like visibly upset. She said, why did they turn the music off? I started playing again, and she's on beat, dancing, all those different things. We could easily look over that, that she's having a good time, but no. Our songs teach our children. They listen. They remember. It plants deeply in their heart the truths of God. So at whatever stage of life you are at, start. Teach your children the things of God because now and today in the life that we live, in the world that we live in, excuses and laziness or intimidation has to be done. We have to begin wielding the challenge that God has so laid upon us to do as parents, to raise our children up to know the Lord, period. Because hear me, it might sound strange and you might think contrary and we can argue about this later, but you are the most influential person in your child's life. Your home is the most influential environment that your children will ever have for the rest of their lives. A renowned sociologist named Christian Smith said this in his book, Handing, it's called Handing Down the Faith. He said, the single most powerful casual influence on the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults is the religious lives of their parents. Not their peers, not the media, not their youth group leader or clergy, not their religious school teachers. Myriad studies show that beyond a doubt, the parents of American youth play the leading role in shaping the character of their religious and spiritual lives, even well after they leave the home. I want you to hear that. 
even well after they leave the home and often for the rest of their lives. The best general predicator of what any American is like religiously after comparing all other possible verities and factors is what their parents were like religiously when they were growing up. Did you hear that? People can look at our children and determine how we were religiously in our homes. That's the impact we make on our kids. Is your home saturated with the gospel? Are you, as the parents of your home, or a single father, or a a single mom, laying the gospel before your kids? Because the life you live will determine the the legacy that you leave in the hearts of your children. Your children will learn how to interact with the Lord based upon how you interact with him. You see, we often say, do as I say, not as I do. Well, you don't do that, Dad. Well, don't do as I do, just do what I say. It doesn't cut it. That's not good enough. Our children absolutely hear the words that come out of our mouth. But when we're speaking the name of Jesus throughout the week, but in our home, it looks completely different. There is no Jesus in our home. They're not gonna follow him because they don't see you doing it. They don't see the value of Jesus in your life, so he means nothing in theirs. We will teach our kids to pray by them listening to us pray. We will teach our kids to sing and worship the Lord by them seeing us sing and worship the Lord. They will learn to forgive. They will learn to love. They will learn to repent all by watching us do all of those things. We are not exempt from anything that we call our children to. We are not exempt from anything that we call our children to because they are watching us. They want to see if our actions match our words. Now, you can hear this and say, well, I've got to be perfect. No, you don't. This does not mean that we don't mess up. This does not mean that we don't lose our cool or or, or say something we don't need to say, maybe say a four-letter word at some point in time, get upset, get angry, all of those different things. Hear me, it's gonna happen. But the gospel screams the loudest in what comes next when you do those things. What do you do? Do you brush it under the rug and try to move on? Do you allow the tension and the frustration to continue to dwell between you and your children or even you and your spouse? Or do you come and repent? Do you sit down with your kids to say, hey, mom or dad, we messed up. I shouldn't have done that. I said something I shouldn't have said. Will you forgive me? That can be a hard thing to do. Ask forgiveness of your children. I've seen it in my own daughter that when I've lost my cool or I've elevated my voice and I come to apologize to my daughter, she looks at me with the sweetest eyes and says, it's okay, daddy, and gives me a hug. Our children want to see us come to them. They will learn through our actions when we mess up that one, it's okay to mess up. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But the beauty is in that forgiveness that isn't received as we have received forgiveness from Jesus Christ when we repent and ask for forgiveness of our sins. You see how this is lining up here? This is important. We have to nurture and love and live a life that looks like the gospel with our families. Because I've heard over my time that the biggest goal of some parents is to not let their kids go to jail and keep them alive. And if they get through their life and they launch out and they haven't done that amen job complete, I'm out. That can't be it. There's got to be something more. Because guess what? People go to jail. People make mistakes. They do things they shouldn't do. 
just like you but, and me, but some have higher consequences than others. Our stake cannot be that they get uh, the American dream, that they have 2.5 kids, a Labrador, a white picket fence on an acre lot somewhere. One, that doesn't exist in Murfreesboro, but two, that's not going to happen. There's got to be something more. What does it look like for your child to grow up and live a life of absolutely falling short of the glory of God, but continually coming back and asking for forgiveness from Jesus? And walking in obedience, striving one foot after the other to push back the sin and rid themselves of the sin that is in their life through the blood of Jesus. This has to be our goal. The American dream is not enough. They can have all the promises of the world and still go to hell. Parents, want more for your family. Want more for yourself and want more for your kids. Want more for your kids. You can't control their decisions. They make their own choices. But if we lay before them the glories of God, our Heavenly Father will one day look at us and say, well done. You did what I asked of you as a parent, to lay before your children the gospel. And we have to now wholeheartedly do this because the church of 2030 is coming. <laughs> they're in our nursery and in middle school ministry and in high school ministry. They're here. What are we doing with them? Because it doesn't matter how godly this generation is. It does not. We should be. Hear me loud and clear. We should be a godly generation who fight for the things that God fights for, who love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. But if we don't impart them to the next generation, we've failed because they will slowly begin to drift. And the Jonathan Edwards line will then turn into the Max Jukes line because they did not know Jesus. If you keep reading in Judges, you quickly find that a generation did what is right in their own eyes. They fall away from the Lord. I mean, even our oldest universities that we have, like Princeton and Yale and Harvard and all these different places, do you know they were started to train pastors? The point of their existence at the beginning was to exalt Christ, to glory in God. But today, their only glory and, and God they serve is enlightenment, pleasure, and self. They drift. I mean, we even talked about Jonathan Edwards. He was a president of Princeton. You could never know that now. We have to impart the glories of God to the next generation. That is our parental responsibility. Dads, hear me. Your children need to hear you sing does not matter how bad it is. <laughs> they need to hear you sing. And a substance that you do sing needs to be Christ. I'm not saying that the only thing you can listen to is Christian music. <laughs> but reel in the substance of the songs you do listen to. What are they glorying in? What are they driving home for your kids? Dads, your children need to see you raise your hands. If the only thing that our kids see is us standing in worship with our hands in our pockets or our arms crossed, a coffee cup in our hand, drinking coffee while we worship, what do you think they're going to do? How do you think they're going to react to the songs we sing together? song we just sang, yet not I, but Christ through me, a dependency upon the Lord. We've got to be moved by that and show it. Show how the Lord is moving. Let your children see you raise your hands. And they need to hear God's word from your lips. 
They need to hear God's word from your lips. Not mine, but yours. Do you open the Bible and read it in your home? Get the Jesus Storybook Bible out. Read little snippets. Point at the pictures. Interact with the word of God. And teach them. Let their children see. And here's one, one, one big debate, okay, that I'm going to be as sensitive to as I can. (laughs) Your children, if they're in your home, need to come to church, period. Your obedience to the Lord is not contingent upon the desires of an 11-year-old. You're the parent. Bring them to church. Because here, here's the thing. What we often can say is, well, they don't want to be here. You're right. My daughter doesn't want to eat green beans. But they're good for her. So we teach her to eat green beans and now she likes them. Our children don't understand the goodness of the church. They've not lived long enough to see it. All they care about is that I didn't get to stay home and watch TV or keep my feet up or go here or go there where I've been entertained. Your children need the gospel. Bring them to church. Bring them to church with you. You run the ship. Because we can't expect our kids, if they don't love the church now and we never make them come to church, and we let them, God, this, take the steering wheel of our home, that one day when they turn 18, just a switch is going to be flipped. And they're going to wake up and say, you know what? Let's go to church. I love church. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. And as well, what we need to be cautious of in doing that is our own attitude. What does our attitude look like when we come to church? Are we frustrated? Do we come grumbling? Are we angry when we got to wake up in the morning to come to church? If you're like me and you're not a morning person, get up a little bit earlier before your kids so you can get your cup of coffee and have a little bit of quiet time, okay? So that way when you're involving your kids and your family with going to church, you can genuinely be joyous. Because again, they watch us. If we're frustrated and angry and don't want to be here, that's going to impress upon them. See, my my daughter, she, from the beginning of her life, has seen me watch football. When football season is in, it's on my TV, okay? It just is. My wife knows this. When it's not, there's like murder shows on TV because that's what she likes to watch, okay? (laughs) If I disappear, she did it, okay? We don't let Florence wash those, okay? <laughs> but from the very beginning, she's seen me be excited and, and yelling and interacting with the TV, getting pumped when the Titans do something good and really angry when the Titans do something bad, which is more often than not. <laughs> so now when football comes on the TV, she quickly says, Daddy, football, let's watch it. She'll come and sit down with me, and she interacts with the TV. She'll she doesn't know what she's actually talking about, but she just says, run, boys, run. Like, get after it. Because she's seen my excitement and my enthusiasm with the sport. It has rubbed off on her. It's not going to be any different when it comes to church. It's not going to be any different when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. Our excitement, our enthusiasm, the forgiveness that has been given to us via the gospel will rub off on our children. And I'd rather have the gospel of Jesus Christ rub off on my child than football, than anything else. So we need to understand our attitude honestly needs to be in check. Yeah, we're sinful people and we're gonna have terrible days. But yet again, here comes this cyclical cycle of forgiveness and repentance before our children. And this leads me to my last point. Joshua charges Israel to make a public declaration, a public declaration. You see, covenant relationships are not secrets. We don't go get married in a closet and hide where nobody sees. It's just us. 
There's witnesses to our weddings. The officiant, our friends, our family, even if you just have a small wedding, there are witnesses to come and see. This is why baptism is done before the church. It is a public declaration. It is a public declaration of following Jesus. It does not save you. I'll make that very clear. Baptism does not save you. It is a public declaration, as is my ring, a public declaration that I'm a married man. This is why baptism is done in public and before the church, because people need to see. They need to see. Our faith in Jesus is a personal thing, but it is not a private thing. It is not a private thing. Jesus commands us in the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that he has commanded us, i.e., my faith is not private. I've got to impart it to people that are around me, which means I've got to tell people that are around me. From the neighbors, from your household to your neighbors and to the nations. We share the gospel with people. We openly walk with the Lord. And I want you to think about this. In understanding the light of the gospel, our Savior Jesus was not beaten and crucified in private. He was not flogged in a back room where people could not see. He was beaten in front of crowds and then ran through the city as a spectacle for everyone to see. And at the end of that line, he was high and lifted up on a cross for all to see the Savior of the world crucified on the cross. And if we are supposed to live our lives in light of Jesus as we follow in his footsteps, why do we think that we can live private lives with the gospel? We are to be a people who are open about our faith, regardless of ridicule. You see, the beauty also is not only was he high and lifted up, he was then put in a tomb and then three days later rose and then went and showed himself to people. Defeating sin and death, placing in his hands a people who had placed their faith in him to which he would never let them go. We have to be a people who are public with our faith. Public declarations matter. There's no gray area here. We can't ride on the fence. Because remember earlier I said, Jesus will not stand for half-hearted commitments. And he says, if you are embarrassed of me in front of men, I will be embarrassed of you in front of God. <laughs> so therefore, when we live this life, we are not to be ashamed. Romans 1.16, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation, we cannot live lives ashamed of what the Lord has done in us, how he has saved us, the work that he has accomplished, the restoration he brings to our households. People have to know, because if they don't know, how then will they be saved? We've got to tell people, we've got to tell people about the gospel and proclaim our faith from here until the ends of the earth. Some of us in this room, we have a choice to make. We need to make public declarations. Some of us might need to make a public declaration of baptism, that you are a follower of Jesus. If you're in this room, we want you to take that step of obedience. We want you to be baptized. Not because, like I said earlier, not because it saves you, but because it's obedience. The public declaration of, I am a follower of Jesus. I have been made new in him. I've been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. All of those things people need to know. Others need to declare publicly, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Period. So what I want to do to close out our morning together, I want to preface it, okay? I want to preface it. 
if you do not mean what I'm about to ask you to do, don't do it. I'm going to ask the men to do something. I'm going to ask you women to do something. Okay? If you do not mean what I'm about to ask you to do, please don't do it. So here it is. If you are a male in this room, my men, if you're in this room, and you have your own household, your own household, okay, your own household, and you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him, I need you to stand. And if you don't mean it, be man enough to stay seated. Praise the Lord. Stay standing with me, okay? What I want to do, we're going to make a public declaration together, okay? I want you to repeat this after me. And if you don't mean it, please don't say it. We cannot lift up empty words to our Savior. We lift up words that are meant and we want to say. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you mean it? Amen. Now can be seated. My ladies, <laughs> you have a huge part in this. We can't lead households on our own. Some of us have to. Some of you have to. And this declaration is just as much on your shoulders as anybody else. So, if you are a woman in this room and you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him, I need you to stand. Again, if you do not mean it, do not stand. Be woman enough to stay seated. Again, I want you to repeat after me, and if you do not mean it, please don't say it. For your hope and your heart. I want you to repeat after me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you mean it? Amen. You may be seated. Now, some of you in this room don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. What this means is you have to first lay your life down at his feet. You have to repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. You see, the gospel is the power of salvation for every human. And if we want to be able to steward our homes and lead our homes to the feet of Jesus, we can't take our family somewhere we've never been. So I'm going to ask, and I don't know if anybody's even going to stand up here, okay? But I want to ask, if you've never given your life to the Lord, if you've never given your life to the Lord and you want to surrender your life to Christ right now, would you stand? I'm going to poke and pry and stay, okay? If you would rather come to the back and talk to me or Kyle, please meet us there. Our hope is that there are people in this room who would lay their life down at the feet of Jesus, that households and generations to come would be transformed by the blood and the power of Christ. Church, the declaration that you made today, you made yourself a witness before God as Joshua told the people, you are your own witness and you, you're not your own accountability because we'll hold you accountable. <laughs> but you are a witness before God of your declaration that as for you and your household, you will serve the Lord. And my prayer and hope is that you would do that. And we as the church love you and we want to walk with you and help you in any way that we can. Because the hope is that we would see generations change for years to come. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we love you. You are so gracious to us. We can do absolutely nothing without you. Father, we can't lead our homes. We can't do battle against the enemy. We can't save ourselves. God, we need you to do that. God, we need you to move in our hearts, to strengthen our steps, strengthen our hands. that we could walk and do and live a life that honors you. So Father, hide us in you that we may be a people who are pure and who are holy as you are holy. God, I pray that we as a church would love these families well, that they would know as though they are the primary leader of their homes, they do not have to do this alone that the church would come alongside and wrap their arms around them and love them and cherish them and walk with them. You have entrusted their families to us. So Father, as pastors and leaders in the church, may we shepherd well out of the example of you, the good shepherd. Father, I pray that if someone was in here and they were just nervous to stand up, May you create in them an uneasiness and a stirring that they would know that you offer forgiveness of their sin, that you offer fulfillment. The hole that they have in their heart cannot be filled by the things of the world. It can only be filled by you, King Jesus. Salvation comes by no other name but Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. And we need you in every moment and every day. In your precious, perfect, and holy name we pray. Amen.